0: Yo, 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 yo. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast. My voice is that of me, Giles Bidder. And this is the last of the month of Hassle Records interviews. And we're speaking to Wes. I'm speaking to Wes, who is the head honcho of the record label. I'm going to ask him all about how he started the label, the bands he's worked with, why he works with them, what their general vibe is. I love the way they don't really have a business plan That's my kind of jam. If you haven't been paying attention all this month, I've had episodes with Hassle-related bands, including Press Club, Brutus, Four Year Strong, and Tube Lord. So if you've got some catching up to do, you know where to go. Thank you very much, Hassle Records. It's their 15th anniversary this month. They're doing a bunch of represses on some of their incredible back catalogue, and you can find all that at their website, HassleRecords.com. East London Signature Brew have been brewing music inspired beers since 2011 they've made collaboration beers with Mastodon with Idols with Slaves sports team recently and you can go onto their website signaturebrew.co.uk and get 10% off all their orders by using 101 podcast as a coupon at checkout okay thank you very much for listening as always if you want to rate and review and subscribe that's the only thing that gives this show legs if you like this podcast enough to do that Please tell a friend. Here's Wes from Hassle Records. Go well.
1: Cheers.
0: Wes, thank you so much for, for for chatting to me on on 101 Part-Time Jobs. No worries. Good to good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> As we just said, I was saying how it's this this podcast has turned into more now like more a free-flowing conversation about you know what you're up to, and I guess I guess what goes on sort of behind the scenes and. And you know, like I, th- I think there's so much work in music that goes on that you that no one ever sees. Sure. You know, for example, when a, you know when a record comes out, you know you have no idea how the the hours, the band, or the label or the management management put in. So, I mean, how how have the last few months been for you in in lockdown? Has that how much has that changed to you?
2: Uh, well, it's it's weird because when this all started kicking off at work, we all looked at each other and said, "Well." What are we going to do for the next, you know, few months or whatever? It's going to be really quiet. It's been actually it's been completely the opposite. We found because um, we've had to try and find ways of keeping things going. Um, so you know, with with all the shops being shut, and no touring happening, so there's no tour sales and no promotion. That side of what we do has actually kind of disappeared for for a short time. But um, what we have found is that we've been talking to all the bands to make sure everybody's okay. And functioning okay, and you know, doing okay mentally, health you know, mental health wise. And then we've, we've carried on with a couple of releases that we had coming out to make sure they came out properly. And then we've, we've, we've continued to plan for the next year to two years. And I think you're probably aware it's our 15th anniversary, so we've been doing a lot of work on that. So we've actually, ironically enough, we've been really busy. So <laughs> and in those. In those 15 years, there must you must have seen that paradigm shift
0: of of making money from records and then, you know, a dip in that, a dip in CD sales. And then am, would, would I be right in saying that people started realising that vinyl could be like a sustainable business model a few years ago?
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, vinyl never went away 100%, but it certainly became quite rare for some genres. I mean, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, we weren't actually releasing albums on vinyl like first we are the ocean album we didn't put out on vinyl so you know that that is something that has grown and been very useful for small companies and bands like us because um it's it's a good form of income you know um but also i think i think a piece of vinyl is it's great isn't it it's a it's an amazing piece of work if you think about it compared to what you pay 20 pounds for a piece of vinyl in london three beers is six quid you know so i think actually I have still got vinyl that I bought when I was 10 years old so it stays yeah. with me for the rest of your life so so that I think that's really good uh, in terms of the shift yeah I mean when we first started the label it was pretty much all CD um, and of course it's maybe 1 2% CD now so it's been complete, it's a complete change so uh, but you know streaming's come through and well it's not making us rich it's doing okay so um a bit of vinyl a bit of streaming bit of CD you no, know, we, we don't do too bad. And vinyl and CD are obviously so different in
0: the way they're packaged, which means all the work that goes into it. I mean, did that change a lot for you? Did, did you have, did you sort of have some some lessons to learn? You know, are there any stories from that shift where you know maybe you, you, you did something uh, that you wouldn't do again?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we've, we've made certain formats that have come out too expensive with gold leaf on the on the. On the cover and stuff like that, so we've certainly done oh, wow. things like that in the past. Um, <laughs> but we're very careful with our costs now because it's such a tough business to actually make a living in. Um, but having said that, we do we do really care about what the record looks like as well as sounds like. So we are very very aware that we like the artwork to be great. You know, we'd like the packaging to be really really good. You know, we don't we never want to be seen to be cutting corners. So we're we're, we're really focused on the you know the, how the physical product looks compared as well as the actual music itself. It's really important. You know, it's, part of the, it's part of the art piece, I think. Yeah, 100%. And so, the, you know, the label
0: starting up 15 years ago, you, you were working at a, a, a label before that, weren't you?
2: Yeah, I used to work for a, it's an Australian independent called Mushroom Records. Um, in the mid-90s, they decided to set up a European office. So I joined them quite early on and helped them set up a European office and um, based in London. And at first, we just worked with loads of uh, pretty not so, such great Australian acts, but then we started signing bands, you know, from Europe and America. And we signed, um, we had big success with a band called Garbage. Yeah, where, of course. I mean, that was, that was very, very big for us. That's huge. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, we did really well, actually. Um, you know, but we also signed bands like the Wild Hearts, work with the Wild Hearts. Um, great. we had a label called Infectious. So we worked with Ash, My Vitriol, um, Band called Zero Seven, and then we signed uh, Muse, and um, uh, we did really well with Muse, obviously because they've become one of the biggest bands in the world now. So um, wow. put their first yeah. albums
0: out. Muse and Garbage, specifically, what I'm talking about, are, are, are two of the huge names. Wild Hearts also have a very special place in in my heart. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know? Was there any indication that they were going to sell a lot of copies of their records?
2: Well, Garbage was an interesting one because. You had three guys that were producers, of course, Butch big produced Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and Soul yeah. Asylum and, and bands like that. And in my experience to that point, I hadn't really been involved with producers that made good records, as in as artists. They were good to make records for bands, but then the, when they become artists, I hadn't really come across a producer that had made a good record, so I was quite sceptical. But then the demos came in for the first four songs, which were Only Happy When It Rains, "Val," Queer and one other i can't remember what it was oh i can't remember but anyway um and the songs were amazing and of course shirley manson was amazing still is and um yeah you know don't get me wrong it wasn't easy with that band because they were slightly older but um right you know we put vow out on a seven inch only at first and we 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 steve LaMack got behind it and it kind of it built from there really it was um yeah it was really good um and then Muse was difficult because nobody really liked them at first. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, with, with the press, that is, not the fans. The press didn't like yeah. them. Yeah. Wow. The enemy used to hate them. And, um, yeah. But the thing with Muse was they're an extraordinarily good live band. And um, we toured a lot, Skunk and Nancy, I mean, Reef, God. We did, we did every tour. And over a two-year period, you know, we ended up selling a lot of records on that first album. And uh, which meant we put the second album in at number two, and you know it went platinum and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but it was a, it was a three to four year process that it was, it was difficult.
0: Yeah, speaking of the process, I mean, I wonder. Uh, people, my age, I'm in my late twenties, you know, for, for most of my life playing in bands has been a, a thing over the internet, you know, first it was MySpace, and then it, you know, it now it's just transgressed into, into all sorts of different formats. And, you know, for example, Lil little peep, for example, I'm not sure if you've seen his documentary, but on Netflix, it was, it's so mad to see someone, you know, his career started on SoundCloud. And I just wonder, how, were you using like the postal service to get these demos from, from garbage?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're talking, you know, 15 years before that, probably. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, the internet didn't really exist then. I mean, it kind of did, but not much. Um, so, yeah, it was a completely different way of doing everything. I mean, we used to send out, for a promo, we'd send out 1,000 CD, CDRs or even tapes at one stage. We'd be, you know, so it's a completely different way of doing things. We'd be sending out physical photos of bands. Um, so it's completely changed.
0: Wow. You quite see how, uh, you see quite often, you know, people f- posting throwback pictures of like, you know, their old like sort of contact sheets. You know, it's like almost like yeah. a postcard picture.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I love seeing those. I kind of like those things still.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and so, what was your, I mean, it, it, this is, you're the perfect person to have in this podcast, really, because, you know, it. it it's, you, you know, usually I have artists, but, you know, this is your full time job and, and your, presumably your full time hobby. Um, but where, where were you as a, as a teenager? What kind of jobs led you into into record label work?
2: Well, I mean, I was I got into music when I was about 10 or 11. And um, it's the same kind of genre. Stock. I'm still into it now, you know. And um, that was very big. In my school, there was a big tribe of us that liked this kind of music. So we used to hang out together. And it was that, that usual thing where you grew up with a group of mates and you end up going down the pub together and all that sort of thing. But jobs-wise, um, when I was at university, I did, camp, uh, did work America. Yeah. So we would go to America for four months in the summer. And um, I um, the job I got was with Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. Wow. Yeah, and I worked, I worked as a shop assistant on Sunset Boulevard. And um, it was unbelievable because it was this store just near Beverly Hills where all the stars used to come into, So all the bands used to come in before they played in L.A., so I met, <laughs> I've got a signed copy of Michael Jackson Thriller because I met Michael Jackson. Wow. Yeah. Um, Tell us about that. Well, I used to work because America is America. When they had all the big record stores, the record stores were open till one in the morning. So I used to work from three in the afternoon to one in the morning. That was my shift. Wow. All the bands used to come in from seven o'clock onwards. And, um, one night, the store manager said to me, Oh, can you close the store? Because Michael's coming in. And I'm like, oh, Michael, who? They're like, well, it's Michael Jackson, you idiot. You're <laughs> like fucking shitting me. So, anyway, so I was like 20 at the time. So um, we, we closed the store. And sure enough, Michael Jackson came in and did an hour's worth of shopping. No, no, There's no public, no security, just him. And I, I hate to say he shit. did have a young boy with him, which, wow, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he had a young boy with him? He did, yeah. A 13-year-old boy with him. That was wow. most, no security, nothing. Wow. And, and so you were there
0: sort of flicking, you know, putting, putting stuff on the shelves?
2: No, none of the staff were allowed in the shop floor when he was in the shop. But he did sign autographs, so we were allowed to get a copy of whatever we wanted out of the rack and then get him to sign it. And he signed a copy of Thriller for me. Wow. Yeah. I've still got that. That's incredible. Yeah. But I mean, I met loads of bands like my heroes, like Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, Aerosmith, all those bands used to come in and shop in there. Wow. And here's another fact fact from that store. Rivers from Weezer used to work on the same shift as me. And I became good friends with him. Rivers was working the same time as you? Yep, And he did, he did the new age section. And I used to do a lot of classical stuff. And, uh, we became good friends and used to go out drinking together before he way before he was a, he was a bass player then. And he had a mohawk.
0: <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've had Matt Sharp on this podcast a couple of months ago right? and it was, it was fascinating to find out about where, you know, those two lived together way before Pat and, and Rivers started Weezer. But you know, Matt Sharp wasn't even, you know, he was aware that Rivers played guitar,
2: but Weezer was basically his first band. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's no, incredible. I mean, because I talked about forming a band with him because we were both bass players at the time. Uh, we, we talked about forming a band with two basses and all this crap. But anyway, I went back to the UK and I kind of lost touch with him because, um, you know, it was the days before the internet. I haven't met him a few times since, but um, yeah, it was a uh, quite <laughs> interesting time. Did that give you a kind of impetus to like work in music? Well, I kind of already wanted to because um, I was so into being in band and music. Just I didn't although I was doing an engineering degree, I didn't really really want to be an engineer. So mm. you know, I um it kind of just sealed the deal really. And what happened when you finished your uni degree? Well, I went to a marketing company and was doing really crap market research and was trying to get into a record company. So um a friend of mine or a friend of a friend ran a distribution company called Total Records and they needed somebody to do telesales for a month. So I went and did that for a month. And that's literally on the phone selling records to shops. And um, they used to do things like Mr. Blobby and really terrible music. But it was a good it was a good learning curve to sell records. You would ring up, say, what, Smiths or Woolworths? Well, at the time, it was mainly independents and HMVs because those things were centrally bought. <laughs> but you would literally call up – well, I think Dan Carter mentioned this. I, I became a sales rep after that for a company called Rough, Rough Trade Marketing And I used to sell records to Dan Carter. Um, Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I used to go to his shop on a Thursday and literally buy a load of apple pie from the local baker and we'd talk about music and sell records to him. So um, Amazing. Yeah, it was a good, that was the best job in the world because you get a car, they pay all the petrol, you talk about records all day and they pay you. And I've got to ask, you know, was it all right money?
0: Like in terms of, you know, sort of the living wage of, you know, the realistic living wage of, of being in London?
2: Well, I used to do, cause I was a car sales rep. So I used to drive around to shops all over the Southeast. So I was based in Guildford at the time, um, which is slightly cheaper, but no, the pay was crap to answer your question. Really? Yeah. That's why I left because it was, the money was terrible. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's quite easy, and I, I'm guilty
0: of it as well, of just thinking, you know, oh, there's no money in music now, but there was, you know, that that time ago.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that job didn't pay well. I mean, you, the plus side was you did get a car and all your pets were paid for, um, which is kind of a big cost, isn't it? So, but it just didn't pay that well, you know, for, it was, I still enjoyed it, you know, I was young. And you get to hang out and talk about records all day. I mean, that's what... That's what we do with our friends, right? The good thing then was that that job was it wasn't just, you know, heavy stuff. It was a lot of dance stuff, and although I didn't really know, I still don't know much about dance music. I had to learn quite quickly the difference between trance and house and garage, and you know all that sort. You know, I had to make myself learn about what trance record and that kind of thing. I mean, I still don't really know to be honest, but I had to try and learn. Did you get? Did you get into that that kind of music? No, I mean, I, I don't mind stuff like the ambient stuff and the warp stuff and Orbital and bands like that sort of thing, but I'm not into, you know, house music or anything. I don't. Really, I'm not into it. A slight tangent here, but I mean, it makes
0: me think of like that. That music is such a to me it's such such about the experience. You know, it's, it's the raves, and similarly to you know rock gigs. You know, there's there's such a primal instinctual feeling there, and 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 like you know, what did it feel to you that? Gigs were different back then to, to how they were,
2: you know, before COVID. I still always had a. I've always really, really enjoyed going to gigs from my first one way back to, you know, going to see bands that I really like or bands that I'm working for. You know, I still really enjoy the experience of it, and I haven't really seen a sea change in the excitement of that whole that that experience of being in a room with a load of people, really enjoying that kind of entertainment. Mm. It hasn't that hasn't changed for me at all? Who knows right. what it'll be like after COVID? I have no idea.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know that in terms of what what you'd see on like a merch stall, I mean that must have all like sort of been a natural interest for you.
2: Yeah, well, look, I mean the whole merch thing for bands live now is it's so important for them to survive. So you know, years back it, the merch stand was a couple of t-shirts that were too too expensive and maybe a program, and now it's you know good t-shirts, hopefully at a good price, and you know decent. Other things bits of merch, plus also vinyl and CDs and whatever else, you know. You say programs, as in a sort of
0: mail order sheets.
2: No, like you know, they. they still, I think they're still doing at the big gigs, but because I don't buy them because they're so expensive, you know. They yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, they are. You go to O2, they're still selling thirty quid programs of like from that tour. But you don't see them so much on the on the bands that are doing smaller venues, but you do see it at the O2 size venue still.
0: I saw Pearl Jam a year or two ago, and I have to say I was, I was pretty disappointed
2: on yeah. the O two. What were you disappointed? What, what, what disappointed you about it? Uh, I mean,
0: I mean, obviously they're they're a band that don't exactly do much of a of a stage show, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but then in a venue like that, when you when you don't have like a huge, you know, three massive, you know, eighteen wheelers full of lighting rigs, it just looks so stark, especially those seats behind the stage, you know. Did they have any screens? No screens. What, in the O2? Yeah, I mean, they must have had screens at the back, but I was, you know, where the sort of press, uh, where the oh, sort of guest no, list yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Like, from where I was sitting. But um, but anyway, I mean, that's, that's, that's it now. I mean, my golden year of going to gigs was going to the Astoria and the Mean Fiddler.
2: Yeah, no, I get that. The Astoria, I think the music scene for a lot of development bands has been completely changed because of that. And Astoria was probably the best venue in the world, I reckon. In terms of you know, you could get five hundred people in there or, or sold out of two thousand. It still felt great um, because that venue's gone. That that size venue doesn't really exist in London, does it? I can't think of anything that replicates it because I don't. Coco's just too big, isn't it? Well, Coco's got those four or five layers, isn't it? I don't really like. And then you've got the forum, which hasn't got the same feel and it's a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the LA2 was a great venue beneath it as well, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I think back to that now, and I think back of, you know, queuing up around the corner to Soho Square, and it all it all feels like a dream now.
2: Yeah, do you know what? I think you're probably right. I think I think it's has affected the excitement behind gig, because being in the queue with 2,000 other people that, you know, having had a few beers or whatever it is, you know, is, I don't know, that's part of, the, part of the experience, isn't it?
0: And you make friends there. And, it, and, you know, speaking of Daniel P. Carter and him meeting you when you, you, you were in Reading, did, you must have met so many people just, you know, through having fun and socialising that you work with
2: now. Well, there's, there's a bass player called Chris Dale who is a rock bass player who's played for Bruce Dickinson and bands like that. I met him at the front of the Kiss queue when Kiss was doing a secret show at the marquee. And I was Great. first in the queue, and he was second. And we both queued up at four in the morning. <laughs> and I, he's a good friend of mine because of that. Since then, wow, four in the morning? Well, yeah, because <laughs> I really—I was a big fan at the time. I'm not so bothered now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that's that's just amazing. And I mean, you clearly still got like so much love for it, you know. And I don't—I don't mean that as like a loaded question, or you know, because I guess I guess in your position working in music, it can be you can be surrounded by people who are quite performative about, you know, like, you know, loving the music and being excited, having to sort of convince themselves to be excited about new music. Has that have, has, does that apply to you? Have, you? have you sort of experienced that?
2: Well, no, because I mean, the, the key for us is we work for ourselves and therefore what that means is we only sign bands we like. So mm. therefore, we are excited about them because we actually, we do like who, you know, we're working for. If I, if I was working at a bigger company, being told that I had to work for a certain band, You know we haven't chosen that band we haven't chosen to work with them therefore you're probably not going to like them as much you might respect them and you might like them but you're not guaranteed to like them also all the guys i work with i mean i work very closely with Mies and um you know he's a complete music nut still you know so he he's always bringing new stuff to me going oh listen to this you know he he's the one that brought brutus into us and said look we've got to work for this band you know it's Excellent. And I said, well, yeah, a Belgian band, you know, it's hard to break a Belgian band. And he said, yeah, but it's so good. So we did it. And it's, it's getting quite big for us now, you know? That, yeah, I mean, totally. That's because of his passion, you know? That applies to everybody. Charlie, all Nigel, time, um, you know, all of us. We're all the same. And you mentioned We Are The Ocean earlier. And they're,
0: they're a real kind of um, reference point, I think, for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a real shame with that band because to me... That, that band could have been, people might laugh at this, but I think they, they could have been as big as a Foo Fighters in terms of the songwriting. I think the songwriting was amazing. It just, you know, I didn't do the fourth album Mark, and I think they lost their way. And um, unfortunately, it, they split up. But if they carried on writing songs like they had up until that third album, I think they could have been massive.
0: Powerful songwriting there.
2: Well, Liam's an amazing vocalist, isn't he?
0: yeah incredible you
2: know the whole, when they split with dan that was that was bad that was that was you know that was just difficult um yeah but i do think the album they made after he went was was brilliant so i think it's a real shame we didn't quite connect nearly were they one of
0: the first bands that kind of transcended for for you Well uh... british bands i mean sort of because i know you had like fallout boy yeah,
2: Brit- the first british bands yeah they were because we did a lot of licensing from the US and we had some, you know, Lexus on Fire, and yeah, was Fall Out Boy record. We did Juliette Lewis, so we had some stuff that was doing really well, brand new, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, they were the first British band that starts really, really, you know, we got mail listed on Radio One. You know, that was a time when Radio One used to play rock music. And was that, was that like a, um, was that a
0: business model? You, you, you talk about you know uh, importing and, and licensing. When you when you started full time hobby and hassle, were you was that kind of the plan that, that was kind of going to be your bread and butter to start off with?
2: Well, there was never really a plan like that. We we just signed bands we liked, and just happened at the time that the US was producing an extraordinary amount of bands that were really really good, and also mm. nobody else in the UK was that interested. So, for about two years, we have we were we were the go to company. Um, uh, so, you know, the majors picked up a few things like New Found Glory, um, Blink, but, you know, we had a lot of the other stuff. So, um, it wasn't a business model. It was, it's never, for us, it's never a business model. It's always about, do we like it? And, uh, you know, when I heard that song, Jude Law by Brand New, I was like, what an amazing song, you know? Yeah. Unreal. When I heard stuff, I was like, wow, this is brilliant. You know, even bands like The Cover, beautiful mistake that didn't get that big they're still all those songs that still sound good to me are there any surprise
0: stories from back
2: then stuff that you thought would do massive but didn't or like the complete opposite well we tried to sign my chemical romance and we i took the band out for lunch we went for egg and chips and uh i took um gerard wayne's brother out i can't remember frank was there at the time and um we put the offer in and the guy who we, we were dealing with in America called me, he said, look, the band really like you. We really like you, but they're going to sign to this universal imprint. And um, cause I think the first album went to a universal imprint and they, they the guys from universal spent more on their airfare than than my offer. <laughs> so Wow. You can you see it as a fan, you know, the stark difference
0: between an independent and a major. I mean, how have you, I mean, you talked about how, you know, you only sign bands that you love,
2: but that, that must've been hard over the years, perhaps. Oh yes, it's difficult because you there's a lot of bands that we we think we would have done a better job on than the major did. But unfortunately, you know, and don't get me wrong when a band signs to a major, I'm not knocking that because you you sometimes you have to because you need the money. Mm. And um, also don't get me wrong, there's a lot of really good people at majors. I'm not I'm not anti-major. I've, a lot of my good friends work at majors and also um you know, I've worked closely with a lot of majors as well on different things, and we still are. So we're not anti-major at all. Um, but what it what it does say is, you know, we have this amount of money, we will spend it in this way, and if it works, great. If it grows nicely, that's really really good. But if it doesn't, it, you know, it's it's difficult. So the answer is, it's really difficult. Yeah.
0: Adapting to online. I mean, that's that's the that's the key, isn't it?
2: one hundred percent. You know, we you've got to be really really internet savvy and you know streaming is a good and bad thing in terms of it's good because of accessibility but we all know it doesn't pay that well and unfortunately rock bands aren't really streaming that big at the minute so it's, it's quite difficult to make tons of money out of streaming or even mm. money so um you know we supplement that with the final thing we've talked about and you know still do a bit of cd we do a bit of management so You've kind of got to do a bit of everything to, to stay in the game.
0: I mean, it, it seems like not too long ago when you heard about people signing 360 deals.
2: Yeah, well, we don't do that. You know, we, we, we generally speaking, we only do record deals, but we do do some publishing. But we'd never say to a band, they must do their publishing with us. We'll all say to a band, here's, here's a record deal. And in a year or two, let's talk about publishing. And if you want to do it, that's cool. And if you don't, that's cool too. It's always about choice.
0: Is that because it, like it also kind of makes things more complicated?
2: Uh, maybe. I mean, I think it's because our main skill set is in record, being a record company. Yeah. We're not a publishing company really, but we, we, we're probably better than some actually, but you know, we can do it. Uh, and I think we're quite good at management as well, because we've been doing it so long.
0: I feel bad about saying that there was a, it was a golden era in rock music. And I'm probably, I'm saying that more as a, more as a fan, you know? And I think you always look through things with a, with rose glasses sometimes, don't you? But I mean, obviously, you've done so well. I mean, you've you remained to be one of the most important, you know, guitar music labels in Britain. Absolutely, yeah. We never really
2: think about it, to be honest. You know, we just um, we just work for our bands, and we 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 enjoy putting music out. You know, the skill set that you have is
0: that is that always changing? I mean, when you when you started the label, did you? I mean, I presume you, you must have learned a lot of you know the the bread and butter starting points from the label before that you were working out.
2: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, you look, every – I'm not going to say every day is different, but every week or every month is different in terms of how you have to do things. Um, I remember about 20 years ago, a guy I was working with said – he said he was leaving the label. And he said, oh, I, I don't feel like I'm learning anymore. And I looked at him, mm. oh, fucking hell, you're an idiot. Because if you're not learning, you're not trying to learn. Because in this job, you can learn, you know, like I say, you learn something – knew pretty much every week so um you're constantly having to adapt
0: at what point did you decide to sort of go your own way was it because you wanted to do your own thing well because they
2: were were selling the company and um it was being bought by warners so most of the staff were going to go and work at Warner brothers you know i didn't fancy working for you know my boss signed paris hilton my old boss and it's just like i don't want to work for Somebody like that. I don't want to put her music out because I don't like or respect it. There must have been the temptation there for
0: for, you know, a good wage, perhaps.
2: Honestly, no, I didn't want to get I didn't want to get into the system. I didn't want to go to the system. I didn't want to you know, I wanted to, you know, work for bands like Brand New or We Are the Ocean or or Lonely the Brave, you know. I think it's interesting.
0: I think of people my age and, and younger, I, I went to go work at Festival Republic for a bit. And when I got that job I was I was jumping for glee, you know. I was like fucking brilliant. I you know, grew up going to Reading. Yeah. Love all that. And then as soon as I started working there, you know, I'm not going to badmouth it, but I was like, this is not what I got my, this is not what I thought I was getting myself into, you know? And so I think it must be hard for young people who want to get into independent music that touches us and touches other people and maybe struggle to find a place to start.
2: Yeah. Look, it is. It's a very difficult industry to get into and actually find a way it can pay, you know, pay a decent wage. It is difficult. It's getting, especially in London, where most of the industry is, because London's ridiculously expensive. So, um, yeah, I can appreciate how difficult it is. But, you know, there are jobs out there. And if you are, you know, you want to get into it, you know, you're tenacious. I think, you know, somebody's got to do these jobs, you know. You don't – you want to start a label. You don't necessarily have to start the label in London, I don't think, anymore. I think you could do it anywhere. No, I mean, the, the ideas come from the music and the band in terms of, you know, you get a new artist, like – we. We've got a new band called Foxjaw, and they're very creative. So that gives us an impetus to be creative as well. So the more creative the band are, the better really, you know. And I think it's something that I
0: feel like I kind of have a duty to, to talk about. And that's the, the mental well-being and the sort of the the, the health well-being of, of bands, especially touring bands on their first or second albums where, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID, you know, they're on the road a lot. Um, they're probably getting 50 quid or 100 quid. What's how? How do you see that situation? I mean, you, you're clearly quite close with the bands you work with, and you know, do you nurture them? Is is that something that you that is that you consider a, a,
2: a big job of yours? Yeah, one hundred percent. We we're very close to our bands to the point where we want them. If a band falls down because it's because um, of problems like that, because of the pressures of touring, that's obviously good for nobody. You know, look at a band like Casey. Casey were about to explode. I mean, literally explode. But they toured so hard for two years, three years that they burnt themselves out. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, maybe I should have said that. But anyway, well, that's right. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they got to a point where they they couldn't quite see carry that it was worth carrying on. You know, so um, so it's our job, part of our job, to make sure bands don't don't get to that stage otherwise there'll be no bands basically i mean that's why you're saying less and less bands get to their third album
0: well i I think it's it's something that i've kind of realized after 50 episodes of this podcast is that from my experience of being in a touring band and releasing three or four albums is like the, the the first of all it's so fucking hard to be in a band but probably because of b the dynamic between members and people you're working with that's that's that can be real difficult you know there there are a lot of plates
2: spinning there yeah look the old cliche used to be bands break up because of musical differences i actually think that's bollocks i think 95 percent of the time i think bands break up because of money problems and not being able to get on communication wise that's the main reason bands break up um i understand the
0: the communication one rings very true yeah
2: because about you know <laughs> For example, if you have a band where you have one main songwriter um, and you start to have some success, that songwriter will earn quite a bit more than the rest of the band. Is that a good thing? Of course it's not. You know, that's going to put pressure on the band. So yeah. I, th- yeah. I think this is true and fair play to Dave Grohl, but I believe he splits everything four or five ways. He, I think he does. I believe he does. So I don't. he doesn't have to do that. Um, you know, I worked for a band when I was at Mushroom, who had real problems because there was one songwriter and nobody else had any money. You know, it's tricky.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. You know, when when you're a fan, probably especially when you're maybe a bit younger, is you know you, you see a band and you don't really think about the differences, do you? You know, you know what the drummer looks like and you know what the bassist looks like, and they're as important as the other members. Whereas, you know in the in the workings of it, in you know in that inner circle, it's it's not the case, right? Perhaps.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I tell you what. You, you're a fan of music like me. I'm sure you've got your favorite bands where you thought a certain lineup, usually the first or second lineup, were the best. You know what I mean? And that, there's a reason yeah. for that. And that's called chemistry, you know. So chemistry between a band is really important. And you might think, actually, he's not a particularly good bass player. Doesn't matter if he goes, but actually, there was a chemistry there that he brought to the band. I mean, a band like Van Halen, I mean, you know, big old rock band like Van Halen they had a bass player called Michael Anthony and he was the glue behind that band. And the Van Halen brothers treated him terribly. And, um, you know, it kind of started to fall apart when they started doing that, even though he was, I mean, I say only the bass player, I used to be a bass player. So, um, yeah. Um, I think the chemistry between a band is so, so important, not just because of somebody who's the singer or the songwriter, you've got that unit. You know, you're a unit of people, your team, and and if
0: you have your first EP and your first album, that's a huge success, and that's going to be very exciting for the first six months or a year or maybe even longer. But it will get to a point, right, where it becomes a normality. You know that that's your that is your kind of job, that is your kind of basic day to day, and 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 it's always seemed to me like maintaining that level of excitement can become the struggle.
2: Hey, look, I I didn't get to a bit high level in the band, so I. I don't actually know, but I think you're completely right. Um, because it does become your job. And, you know, one one year you might think, oh, I love doing press. And then after you've done press for five or six years, you might, and you've been slagged off a few times, you might think, oh, what's the, I hate doing press. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've toured a bit and you've toured a bit. I mean, touring, the performance side is great. And if you have a good gig, it's good, but travelling can be really boring, and the waiting around is terrible. You know that's why bands yeah. get really heavily into drinking drugs because they get bored a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think you know that's such a um, a let on to the the health of of people.
2: Yeah, completely. It's part of the whole package and parcel. I mean, one of the ba- I don't want to name my bands in particular, but one of the bands that I work for at the minute, we're now looking at a two year plan where we tour at certain times and not too much because we're talking about the burnout issues, you know, those mm. kind of things we don't want to happen to them. We're trying to address that way up front. I, I, th- I feel like that's maybe unprecedented in a way. Yeah. We, we, we're doing it all the time. I mean, also with some of the bands, we're talking about a 10 year plan. Wow. Well, the reason is, you know, most people want to have some kind of stability in their life after 10 mm. years, don't they? Yeah. So you have to think, okay, if you want to do that, how do we get to that position? And it it doesn't always mean you're touring in a band all the time because it might mean you've got a some bands have got, you have a second job sometimes or whatever it is, you know, because it's difficult.
0: Have you found, is there any kind of secret to keeping the spirit alive? I mean, all too often you'll see bands, especially like hardcore bands and punk bands where they're, you know, the first EP will be a real fire in a bottle, you know, it'll be, it'll fucking rip. And then, and then album two just maybe doesn't have that spirit. Is, is there a way that you could, you, you kind of, try and quality control that as a label for your band? Yeah. It's
2: difficult to do that because that the music comes from the band, doesn't it? So mm. it's that whole cliche of a lot of bands. Their first album is the best album because they spent five years writing it Then they get mm. getting the treadmill and the label and management and everybody else wants another album within a year. So you've spent five years writing one album. You're supposed to write a better album in six months while you're on the road. How can you do that? So, right. you know, some bands manage to do it, you know, bands like Led Zepp or Sound Garden or whatever. I don't know, but um, it is difficult to do that.
0: And now with social media, you're always. I mean, forget about that even being a second job in itself for band members or, yeah, or singers. Yeah. Or, but I mean that as well as the fact that you can't just disappear and write an album. You know, I mean, I mean, you can, you know, but it's a lot harder.
2: Yeah, no, it is. It's really the map. The constant exposure thing is a real problem for for this kind of music for what we do it's um you're always on display or having to churn stuff out aren't you so it's very very difficult is there like some kind of
0: i i almost wish someone i almost wish that i like wasn't embarrassed to talk about it 10 years ago you know doing the social media stuff but i mean it's smart to have some kind of training in that really
2: no no 100 percent. i mean Brutus uh, Peter from the band, um, he works within the social media environment, so he's really right. really smart about it in terms of first of all the messaging is always you know it's never a waste of time it's always there's always something relevant and it's always pretty cool, and then he he knows exactly what time of day and what day to post to get the maximum uh, likes etc because he's Great. trained in that.
0: I, and I think more and more jobs in music are going to be about that. I mean, it's it's the it's the platform, right? Agreed. Yeah. I mean, one hundred
2: percent. Yeah. It's um,
0: it's a sad fact. But we're going to have to do it, and if we're going to do it, we might as well have fun with it and learn to enjoy it.
2: Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Completely.
0: Well, Wes, thank you so much. It's been a great chat. I mean, just to finish off with, what's your sort of what does your average day look like running the label?
2: Yeah, it's not. It's difficult because there isn't really an average day. You know, I mean, we do. We have set meetings during the week. Um, <clears throat> I'll do Monday morning. Nigel and I will plan what we've got to do for the week across the two labels because we have a full time hobby on the indie side. Mm. And then uh, I'll speak to Mies in the afternoon and we'll plan exactly what we're going to do with Hassle. Then on Wednesday, we have a whole company meeting at 11 o'clock for two hours where we talk about every band and what they're doing and the different problems we may be having shipping, manufacturing, all that kind of thing. And then once a month I have a finance meeting with my accountant. Um, so that's that's the basic framework. Then around that, you're talking to bands, or you're talking to radio, or you're talking to you know PR people, or you know, you're doing other things around that, or you're listening to you're in an album or doing an AR meeting. So we have a basic framework and then we we're fluid around that i
0: mean we talked about like radio, radio one earlier but there is still quite a lot of good radio and and we see a lot of internet radio stations cropping up in the last few years
2: yeah i think i think i think things like what you do and um i was talking to sap the i can't say this the yes uh, what's happening guys the other day and what well, you're it's more and more important because i think that um you know people are really into music and bands are going to have to find a way of discovering music because daytime radio one is not giving you that hit is it it's, it's not not for the kind of music we're into so i think it's more important this kind of thing you know you've got a length of time to discuss it in depth if you want to if people want to listen to it they can if if they're bored they can stop you know so it's not like linear radio which is, obviously you've got a certain way of listening i mean you can listen back to it of course, but. And what, what
0: advice would you give to like, you know, the band from Tunbridge Wells right now who are ripping it up, who are sounding fucking amazing, but don't exactly know where to start in terms of putting out a record? Like, what, what advice would you, would you give to a, a really good band like that that don't know where to go?
2: Uh, well, hone your songwriting, so get your songs right, because your music's always the most important thing. Um, at the same time, get your live show However, you're doing it live, get that really, really tight and good. Maybe do that on your own for a year or two and become before you try and get any interest. Because if you try and go out there too early, you know, you might it might be too early and you might not be good enough. And then somebody might pick you up too early. So I'd spend a couple of years just learning how to do things yourselves. Maybe put a few tracks up yourself just to learn how it all works before you then approach somebody else to do it. And then, and then approach somebody like me or whoever you want to talk, work with and, and try and get that person to then help you take it to the next level. I
0: think what you say about not trying to do things too quickly, I, I think is, is so important. I mean, everything
2: takes time, right? Yeah, look, we Brutus is just starting to look like there could be quite a big band. We've been working with them for four years and they were a band for two years before that. So that's six wow. years to get to this point. Yeah. I think Craig Jennings from um, Raw Power, who's a good mate of mine, he said something years ago, about three or four years ago. and He said it's all about five-year cycles, and I think he's right. I think you, you you spend the first five years starting, then you spend the next five years getting your career together and actually trying to earn some money, and then if you survive ten years, you can start to think about longevity. Makes a lot of sense, especially those first five
0: years, which is where most bands will fall off. I I, I think it takes that amount of time to realise what you are, what you look like, what it sounds like.
2: Yeah, completely. I mean, look at Biffy. You could probably, the way Biffy did it, three albums on Beggars Banquets an Independent, then went to Warders. They went from being a band that sold 15,000 records on Beggars. Warners stuck a load of money behind it, but it didn't work at first. It took about five years for it really to connect. And of course they're massive now. So that's, I mean, what are they? How are they, 20 years in?
0: I don't know, but I remember being like, I I feel like I was 13 when I discovered them, you know?
2: So, their their eighth album just come out, hasn't it? You know, so it's that cyclical thing. They're currently from that crop of bands. They're the last band standing, I think. Wow. Credit to them. Yeah, 100%. And credit to you, 15 years down the road. Yeah, cheers. You know, we still enjoy it, you know? (laughs) Good to hear. So
0: that was Wes from Hassle Records. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it far and wide. It's the most helpful thing you can do for the show. Cheers.
1: I've been working all day coming.